Hello and welcome to the Fit to Transform podcast, where you learn how to train and diet effectively and, most importantly, how to maintain those results for life, once and for all. I'm Nikias Tomasiello, a transgender training and nutrition coach working online with anyone who's ready for a true lifestyle transformation anywhere they may be in the world. As a friendly reminder, any and all information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult with your doctor before implementing any changes to your diet and exercise program. With that disclaimer out of the way, thank you for being here. Now grab yourself a cup of tea or pre-workouts and enjoy. Yo, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm talking to Milo Wolf, who is a PhD student researching the relationship between hypertrophy and range of motion, which was also the main topic of the interview. I found this to be a really thought-provoking conversation, and in fact, I think that it will change, to an extent, the way I program for myself and for my clients as well. So stay tuned and listen to the end from some pretty groundbreaking ways to enhance hypertrophy that also appear to be evidence-based. And with that introduction, let's get straight into this conversation. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast, dear listeners. Today with me, I have Milo Wolf, also known as the ROM guy. Milo, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Today, I want to delve into your area of expertise, which is the relationship between hypertrophy and range of motion. But before we delve into the meat and potatoes of the conversation, I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and why you're so awesome at it. Stop it, you. Yeah, so my name is Milo Wolf. Uh, I've been lifting for about nine years now. I got into sports science because I got into lifting first, and I gradually got more interested in the science behind lifting weights, growing muscle, and building strength. And so eventually, I went to study sports science in the UK. I did my undergraduate degree. And now I'm in the process of finishing up my PhD on range of motion and muscle growth. Um, so it all really stemmed from a personal interest in growing muscle and building strength, which eventually grew into an interest in the science behind it and an interest in helping others do the same. Um, and yeah, I've both competed in powerlifting and bodybuilding, and I've coached a good amount of athletes now over time and gen pop clients as well. And that is, for the most part, my background in why I got into sports science and range of motion specifically as well. Thank you for the introduction. The way I came across your work for the first time was when I found out about your systematic review and meta-analysis, partial versus full range of motion um, for resistance training. Sorry, I got myself, my words jumbled there. And so what I thought would be interesting to start with would be what got you interested in the relationship between range of motion or ROM and hypertrophy in the first place? Absolutely. So when I was in first or second year as an undergraduate, so I was about 18 or 19 years old, um, I started getting more and more into the evidence-based fitness space. And one of the topics I got interested in was range of motion. Simultaneously, I started doing some work for Renaissance periodization at the time. So that's uh, Dr. Mike Isretel's brand and all the other good people over there. Um, and they were big proponents of full range of motion. 
Mm-hmm. And broadly speaking, that seemed to represent what most of the fitness uh, evidence-based fitness community thought of range of motion at the time, which was that a four range of motion is best for hypertrophy, but ultimately that performance is somewhat range of motion specific. So mm-hmm. if, for example, you're a powerlifter who only squat parallel, you may not need to sink your squats to astigrass every time. You may be fine just squatting to parallel. And that was kind of the consensus in the evidence-based fitness community at the time. But one thing that was commonly acknowledged was that there wasn't that much evidence around it yet. So right around the time I was finishing up my undergraduate degree and was figuring out what the next steps would be for me, um, I was playing around with a few options in my head. I was like, cool, I could go for a master, but my undergraduate degree had been quite broad in general. Um, so I was I was intent on not having my master be a repeat experience where I would go into a master, just keep learning more about sort of general sports science, but not really about my area of interest. And so I was a bit skeptical of doing that. Um, simultaneously, I was considering doing a master in data science or statistics to be able to interpret research better, but also to broaden my career prospects. Um, but I was a bit reluctant to do that as well because of a perceived lack of competence, because it's quite difficult changing from an undergraduate and an unrelated degree um, to a different postgraduate degree. And then finally, um, I had thought about doing a PhD. In 2020, when I was about to apply for a PhD, a systematic review had recently come out about range of motion um, by Brad Schoenfeld and Mr. His name is the hardest to pronounce, Gurdjik, I think. Gurdjik, yeah, I've heard that before. Um, But they had recently released a systematic review and that was on range of motion and hypertrophy specifically. Now at the time, there were six studies on range of motion, four in the lower body, two in the upper body. Broadly speaking, the results supported a full range of motion for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the upper body, because there were only two studies, the evidence was less consistent. Uh, one study showed a partial range of motion to be better for hypertrophy, and the other one showed um, a full range of motion to be slightly better. And so overall, in the upper body, no clear trend. And so from my perspective, it was a matter of, okay, well, I want to apply for a PhD. I'm reasonably interested in range of motion as a concept. And I've just found out that there's not that much evidence because I've been keeping up to date somewhat. Um, so why not do a PhD on this? You know, ultimately, my bias going into it was full range of motion is likely best for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. But if there's not that much evidence around it yet, I may as well do my part in quote unquote science and um, add some studies to the evidence and give us a bit more certainty around what range of motion plays a role in and how it impacts hypertrophy. Very interesting. So at the time you thought that likely um, full range of motion was going to be better for hypertrophy. Now, before we carry on, could you define, just to make sure that everybody's on the same page here, what full range of motion means in the literature and or in practice, if there's a difference, as well as what partial range of motion refers to particularly partial range of motion at long and short muscle lengths with maybe a couple of examples. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start by defining range of motion and range of motion can really be defined in two ways. One is as displacement of the implement you're using. For example, if you're squatting, um, it can be defined as how much displacement is the bar having done essentially. So, you know, maybe it's Mm -hmm. moving half a meter throughout each squat repetition. Um, So it can be defined as linear displacement or alternatively, and more often for hypertrophy, I think, it can also be defined as um, the motion that takes place around a joint or the change in muscle length. 
about a muscle. So for example, during a curl, you could either define it as say 120 degrees of elbow flexion. So that's the movement about a joint or the change in muscle length. So for example, the biceps that could be going from a fully stretched position to a fully shortened position. So broadly speaking, there's more of like an internal aspect to range of motion, which is more about the movement about a joint or the change in muscle length, or there's the more um, external definition, which is about the displacement of the implement you're using. Broadly speaking, for hypertrophy, I'd mostly be using the movement about a joint definition mm-hmm. because it's just a bit easier to measure. And I think it tells us a bit more about what muscle groups are actually changing muscle length, right? Because if you, you can move, yeah. can displace an implement, like for example, during a barbell curl, either by flexing your shoulder or by flexing the elbow, and that will result in different um, changes in muscle length in different muscles. For example, if you're flexing the shoulder, your front delts and your long head are going to get shortened, um, but not your short head of the biceps or your brachialis or brachioradialis. Whereas if you're flexing the elbow, your front delt won't be shortened, but the three elbow flexors will be. Mm-hmm. So generally, the movement about a joint is the definition we should stick with. Now, when it comes to distinguishing between full and partial range of motion, a full range of motion essentially just refers to the maximal range of motion you're able to attain in an exercise using the joints that are meant to be used, right? Um, a partial range of motion is anything less than a full range of motion. So essentially, it's just a sub-maximal or less than full range of motion. So that could technically be anything from an isometric contraction all the way to 99% of a full range of motion. So it's quite a catch-all term, and it's a bit of a um, dichotomy, right? Like you're separating it to either full or completely maximal or anything mm-hmm. less. There's no sort of in-between there. And certainly it's it's worth looking at things on a spectrum rather than um, as a binary option of full or partial, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Now, with regards to muscle length, when you're talking about muscle length, with a full range of motion, you don't really get to choose the muscle length that much given an exercise, right? Like if you're doing a full range of motion on a squat, for example, the muscle length, the spectrum of muscle lengths you'll target or what they are, you know, like you'll get a relatively short muscle length at the top and a relatively long muscle length at the bottom and the average muscle length will be perfectly in the middle of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where partial range of motion can be interesting in targeting different muscle lengths is that it can allow you to manipulate both the spectrum of muscle lengths being um, trained. So for example, let's say, you know, you train through a muscle length of 100 and 0 with the full range of motion squat, 100 being the most lengthened and 0 being the least lengthened. Um, with a partial range of motion squat, you can cut that down from maybe 25 to 75. So that you don't go to both ends of that spectrum, you sort of stay in the middle, right? Mm-hmm. So you're both changing the variety of muscle length training, but you can also change the average muscle length being trained. And I think that's the more important and more um, more easy to understand variable. So for example, if you only do the bottom half of the squat, your average muscle length will be longer than if you were training the full range of motion. Likewise, if you're only training the top half or like a half squat um, of the squat, your average muscle length will be shorter than if you did a full squat. Um, and so... By using a partial range of motion, you're able to either increase or decrease the average muscle length of an exercise. And that means that the partial range of motion or partial reps can be either at shorter or longer muscle lengths. And the muscle length at which an exercise or a range of motion is performed may, in fact, dictate some of the adaptations that's implemented. Perfect. That was the most exhaustive explanation of range of motion for hypertrophy that I've heard. So thank you very much. This was pure gold. And now we're back to where we were with our story, with you deciding to 
um, study the relationship between partial versus full range of motion and hypertrophy. So you said that your bias was that likely full range of motion was going to be better for hypertrophy. The meta-analysis is free for everyone to read, so we can just quickly summarize what the results were, if you're okay with that. Yeah, of course. So this was about a year ago now, a bit less than a year ago. Um, we worked on the meta-analysis, as you mentioned, and a systematic review of the evidence on range of motion and not just muscle hypertrophy, but also on strength, power outcomes, sport outcomes, and body fat as well. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason for that is there had been one systematic review and one meta-analysis on a topic before that, but um, they had focused on muscle hypertrophy specifically in the lower body mm -hmm. and on strength, but that was before much evidence had come out. And it struck me as somewhat of a limitation that they only looked at upper body, uh, uh, lower body hypertrophy and not so much at lower body hypertrophy. Uh, sorry, upper body hypertrophy. And it also struck me as a bit of a limitation that we had all this data on um, strength, uh, speed type outcomes, um, and a lot of other stuff, but we had chosen not to look at it despite actually doing a meta-analysis. Um, and so I thought, look, ultimately, um, I think we can make more of this data than has been done so far. And so we went into it. Um, to summarize, we found about 25 studies uh, that looked at range of motion um, during a training intervention. So one group or one condition trained with a partial range of motion, one group or condition trained with a full range of motion, and they compared adaptations in either muscle size, strength, uh, some sort of sport outcome, like a vertical jump or a sprint speed, some sort of power outcome, like rate of force development, and some sort of body fat outcome. And so we included all those, um, ran some analyses, and broadly speaking, this is what we found. For hypertrophy, when you dichotomize range of motion as being either full or partial, um, there is a trivial benefit in favor of full range of motion for hypertrophy. Now, for strength, power, sport, and body fat type outcomes, again, all the effect sizes leaned in favor of full range of motion, but the effect sizes were trivial. So we're not talking about big effects here, which likely means that to a large extent, the range of motion you use can be flexible and potentially catered to your preferences, uh, whether you have any injuries that sort of make certain parts of the range of motion uh, more painful than others, um, and that sort of stuff. So broadly speaking, the biggest results were the effects are relatively small. And when you dichotomize range of motion to full or partial, and just look at that, a full range of motion covers you slightly better than a partial range of motion for these outcomes. The really interesting findings to me were twofold. One, when you look at hypertrophy, but you don't dichotomize range of motion into partial or full, you, you further separate partial range of motion into being either performed at longer muscle lengths than full range of motion or shorter muscle lengths than full range of motion. So like we discussed, longer or shorter average muscle lengths than during a full range of motion. Mm -hmm. That's when you see the sort of interesting results to me. So there wasn't that much data at the time. I want to say there were two or three studies comparing lengthened partials or longer muscle length partials to full range of motion for hypertrophy. And there were about five or six, maybe seven uh, studies comparing, actually five or six, comparing um, shortened partials to full range of motion for hypertrophy. Broadly speaking, what you saw is that the average muscle length during that range of motion seemed to correlate pretty well to how much hypertrophy it caused, right? So lengthened partials actually caused more hypertrophy than a full range of motion by a small effect size. Mm -hmm. um, 
the reason I wasn't super confident about this at the time, but I, I was reasonably confident, is because, again, we only had two or three studies on this at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas when a partial range of motion was performed at shorter muscle lengths, it did seem to cause less hypertrophy than a full range of motion. So like I just mentioned, when you just dichotomize range of motion into being either a full or partial, um, you did see a trivial effect size in favor of full range of motion. But when you actually look at, okay, well, not all partial ranges of motion are created equal. Let's look at the muscle length being trained. Then you see that, okay, well, the muscle length at which the exercise is performed seems to be quite important in determining the hypertrophy effect. And so because most of the studies on partial versus full range of motion had the partial range of motion condition trained at shorter muscle lengths, inherently, the literature was a bit biased towards a full range of motion, in my view. Um, mm. So that's why when you subdivided partial range of motion into shorter and longer, you actually saw, oh, longer muscle length partials may actually be better for hypertrophy than full range of motion, whereas mm-hmm. full range of motion is better than shortened partials. And that seems to be likely just a byproduct of muscle length being trained, not so much a range of motion. Um, so that's finding number one. And this finding is supported by a few other areas of evidence as well. So there's two or three other bodies of literature that kind of look at the same thing, but not exactly, right? So one of them is there is now nine studies comparing the same range of motion, a partial range of motion, but performed at different muscle lengths. So for example, um, when you're doing a light curl exercise, you can do it either in a seated fashion when your hips are more flexed and thus your hamstrings are more lengthened because mm-hmm. your hamstrings are hip extensors, or you can do it in a lying fashion when your hamstrings are more shortened because your hamstrings, again, are hip extensors. So the positioning of your hips matters and can change the muscle length of the hamstrings. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been about nine studies like those where they have one group perform the same range of motion, but at shorter muscle lengths, and the other group perform the same range of motion, but lower muscle lengths, and comparing hypertrophy outcomes after, say, eight weeks of training. And broadly speaking, those nine studies strongly support the effect of longer muscle length training on hypertrophy. And specifically, they also support the existence of a regional hypertrophy difference, such that um, when you're training at lower muscle lengths, you see similar proximal growth as when you're training at um, shorter muscle lengths. And by proximal growth, I mean closer to the origin point of the muscle. So for the Mm -hmm. biceps, for example, that would be closer to the shoulder. For the hamstrings, that would be closer to the hips. Um, but then at more distal measurement sites, so closer to the elbow for the biceps or closer to the knee for the hamstrings, you see substantially different growth after lengthened partials or lengthened work compared to shortened work. And so there may be predominantly a difference in hypertrophy at more distal measurement sites. So that's one area of evidence that also supports longer muscle length training. And there's another one, which is the isometric training literature. So there's now been five studies comparing shorter muscle length isometric contractions to longer muscle length isometric contractions over, say, six to 10 weeks and measuring hypertrophy before and after. And broadly speaking, the results also support the um, benefit of longer muscle length training, where I don't think a single study found um, the shorter muscle length isometrics to lead to more growth. Mm-hmm. It's either pretty uh, equivalent in how much they induced hypertrophy or the longer muscle length isometrics produced more growth. And so across both the full range of motion versus partial range of motion evidence, the partial range of motion versus partial range of motion at different muscle lengths evidence, the isometric training literature at different muscle lengths literature, and uh, some mechanistic evidence, pretty consistently, lower muscle length training is a good idea for hypertrophy. Um, and since this meta-analysis, more evidence has come out on lengthened partials versus full range of motion, and we're also working on our own studies uh, on the topic that hopefully should come out within the next year or so. Um, 
that also support very much the importance of long muscle lengths, but also specifically that lengthened partials may be better than full range of motion for growth. Specifically, now there's been four studies comparing lengthened partials to full range of motion for hypertrophy, and none of them have found a benefit of full range of motion over lengthened partials for hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. They've all found either um, equal hypertrophy between full range of motion and lengthened partials, or they found better hypertrophy with lengthened partials than full range of motion. Um, I want to say two or three of those four found better hypertrophy, and one or two found even hypertrophy between four range of motion and lengthened partials. Um, certainly, I would like to see more evidence comparing lengthened partials to a four range of motion for hypertrophy, and that's what we're working on right now. Like one of the studies that we've just started actually um, is comparing only lengthened partials to only four range of motion in the upper body in trained lifters across eight weeks and measuring hypertrophy before and after. But I'd like to see more evidence, but at this point, because of how many different bodies of evidence support the role of long muscle length work, and because of how consistent those four studies have been, and that it's either even hypertrophy or better hypertrophy, I'm very much open to recommending and implementing longer muscle length partials as a way of maximizing hypertrophy. The second finding that was interesting to me in the meta-analysis, and I think it's, it's worth keeping in mind in sort of conjunction with this finding, is that performance very much appeared to be specific. So when we subdivided outcomes for strength, power, sports, etc., into having a bias of, of sorts, let's say, for example, the researchers assessed a partial or shallow squat or max. Inherently, the group training throughout the intervention, shallow squats instead of astrograph squats, would have an advantage in the sense that they actually trained the outcome or trained the range of motion that the outcome was testing. When you subdivided those outcomes into, for example, having a partial range of motion bias and that the partial range of motion group trained that range of motion, or a full range of motion bias and that the full range of motion group trained in that range of motion, whereas the partial range of motion group didn't, or having no bias, like for example, let's say they did an isometric test right in the middle of the range of motion. Um, when you subdivided performance outcomes that way, what you saw very clearly is that range of motion appeared to be specific. So if you train a certain range of motion, you'll see better adaptations in that range of motion than if you train a different range of motion or a greater range of motion even. So if you want to, for example, maximize your powerlifting squat, at least in some part, your training should be just a parallel. Um, mm-hmm. You can make a case for having some longer muscle length training in there as well, for example, for more hypertrophy. But broadly speaking, performance outcomes are range of motion specific. So if you want to maximize adaptations in a certain outcome, you should definitely have some part of your training be specifically in that range of motion, no more, no less. So those are the sort of three big findings. So overall, when you just dichotomize four range of motion to partial range of motion, there are trivial benefits to using a four range of motion. When you look at four range of motion versus partial range of motion in a bit more detail with a bit more scrutiny, you can see that actually muscle length appears to mediate the effects of range of motion on hypertrophy quite heavily, such that training at lower muscle lengths, for example, via partials, may promote more hypertrophy specifically at more distal measurement sites. And finally, performance outcomes seem to be quite range of motion specific, such that if you want to maximize performance adaptations, you should be training in that range of motion specifically in at least some portion of your training. Thank you for that. So let me see if I understand this correctly. It seems like if we uh, use a bit more scrutiny, as you said, it's the average length at which we train the muscle that seems to be important for hypertrophy and in particular the evidence seems to lean in favor of an average length being the being um a longer length is that correct 
Yep, absolutely. So I think range of motion range of motion's impact on hypertrophy is mostly mediated by the average muscle length that is created as a result of the range of motion use. Okay. So from that, I think what's interesting is that you specifically stated that you would recommend partial training at longer muscle lengths as one way, a way you said, to maximize hypertrophy. So I think it's valuable to clarify that you're not saying that you would be confident shifting somebody's entire training to all just length and partials, but rather towards a perhaps a type of training where the average length at which the muscle is exposed is more lengthened, but you're not just doing length and partials, you're combining full range of motion and length and partials. Would that be a correct summary of what you were discussing? So certainly my views have shifted over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nowadays, I think, honestly, I'm comfortable recommending exclusively length and partials to someone. Mm-hmm. But if they have any other goals, for example, in strength or power that involve different ranges of motion, or if I'm dealing with someone who wants, quote unquote, functional transfer to daily life as well, mm-hmm. in that case, I can make the case for a full range of motion being implemented. I think because of how consistent the evidence has been, if someone's goals center predominantly around hypertrophy, one thing I'll do for sure is emphasize length and position. That could be via mm. exercise selection, that could be via pausing there, that could be a variety of things. But ideally, that would be by incorporating at least some length and partial work. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone is open to experimentation and wants to maximize hypertrophy with not many other goals, I have had clients where nowadays they do exclusively length and partials. Um, and that's because the evidence is, as I said, quite consistent in that some of the rationales behind using full range of motion don't seem to necessarily hold true. So, for example, one common criticism of partial range of motion in the past was that different ranges of motion target different areas of a muscle. So they might promote, um, via full range of motion, you may promote more even or uniform hypertrophy across the whole mm-hmm. muscle, whereas using a partial range of motion may only promote hypertrophy in certain areas of the muscle. The evidence doesn't seem to support that. So I've read all the studies on this topic multiple times now as part of my PhD. Um, and it seems like length and partials do seem to promote pretty uniform hypertrophy. More so, or rather, it seems that shortened partials or shorter muscle length partials um, don't seem to promote uniform hypertrophy. They only seem to grow more proximal areas pretty well, but not so much distal areas. And so I think a lot of the criticisms of partial range of motion by the evidence-based fitness community don't hold too much weight. Certainly there is contexts where a full range of motion can be more appropriate, even for hypertrophy. For example, mm-hmm. in the context of logistical constraints, like you don't have enough weight available to make length and partial stimulative because you can't take them close enough to failure or you'd have to do 50 plus reps to make it there. Um, mm-hmm. But I think most of the time nowadays, if someone wants to maximize hypertrophy, I would be willing to have them do exclusively length and partials provided they were open to experimentation. Oh, that's a very interesting take. That actually spurred another question on my end, which is about if there are any circumstances under which you would think not to recommend, at least temporarily, uh, training at a longer muscle length. So, for example, if we simply, uh, for example, if a client is a, a beginner, um, would you advise training just at, using length and partials? Yeah, that's a good point. So, to use your example, I think with a beginner, I would probably have them do a few weeks or maybe a month or two of. Um, full range of motion training mm-hmm. that would be mostly for them to have a sort of you know 
a compass or like a something to go off of in the future in the training, mm-hmm. so that they can conceptualize what the full range of motion looks like before mm-hmm. they move into length and partials. I don't think there is anything like oh you know length and partials are only a tool for the advanced because mm-hmm. I don't think it's true. I don't think there's any evidence to support that concept. If anything, most of the studies that have been done have been in like beginners to intermediates. So it would be the opposite almost. Um, but certainly, I think as a complete beginner, it would probably behoove you to get some full range of motion training under your belt, mm-hmm. just so you can conceptualize what a full range of motion is. And then when you want to manipulate your range of motion over time, you can do some more easily and you can compare your range of motion now to before, et cetera. Um, another one would be in injury management. Mm-hmm. So what you see, and this is my PhD supervisor, James Steele, did a study on this during his PhD that I cited in my meta-analysis because it was on range of motion. One thing you see in, for example, people with chronic non-specific low back pain is the training at either extreme of a range of motion, for example, super short muscle lengths or super long muscle lengths, is that people with chronic pain may experience more pain when training at those extremes. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm dealing with someone who has, say, a knee injury that they specifically uh, feel a lot in the super flexed position or at very long muscle lengths, Mm-hmm. Um, if pain is above a certain threshold that we deem sort of important, then I might exclude that position um, or change exercises first, because I think that length position is pretty important. So if all we have to do is change exercises and we can still train that length position, then that might be preferable. But if independently of the exercise being used, we can't seem to be training that super low muscle length without substantial pain or like um, problematic levels of pain, in that case, mm-hmm. we'll modify range of motion and, you know, might be using either a partial range of motion at shorter bus lengths or just a sub-maximal or not quite full range of motion. Um, that would be a second reason. The third reason, as I mentioned, would be logistical constraints. So sometimes someone doesn't have, for example, enough weight available to make a length and partial work or vice versa, actually. You know, sometimes when you think about um, people in the home gym context, for example, they oftentimes won't have access to cables or machines, right? Uh, they mm-hmm. might have dumbbells and barbells on a bench. In that case, some of your exercise selection inherently becomes limited, such that, for example, for your chest and back, free weight dumbbell pullovers and dumbbell flies are inherently essentially lengthened partials, right? And so in that case, you may not really have a choice of, okay, let me do a full range of motion um, isolation exercise for my chest and back. You may be actually stuck with lengthened partial isolation work. Um, and that can go both ways. So sometimes you'll only have the equipment for full range of motion in terms of the weight availability, et cetera, or sometimes you'll only have the equipment available for uh, length and partials. And it can also go the other way where certain exercises are actually harder mm-hmm. length and partials because you're cutting out the part of the range of motion that would be, quote unquote, relatively easy in that lift. And that would provide you with some rest or some time to rest between repetitions. So essentially, when you're doing a full range of motion, you get a sort of mini rest pause effect we get mini breaks between reps that then allow you to go on for longer and or lift more weight. Whereas if you're doing length and partials, I'm thinking, for example, of the squat here, uh, where if you're constantly, you know, from parallel to ass to grass, you don't really get a break. Whereas if you did a full rep at the top, it's not that hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so sometimes you can actually lift less using length and partials. Certainly, I think that effect compounds as you go higher and higher in reps. Because if you're doing, for example, a single rep, right, um, you, don't, you wouldn't get a rest pause effect anyways. Mm-hmm. But then the more reps you do, the more effect compounds such that um, with higher repetition sets on certain exercises, length and partials are more challenging than a full range of motion. Um, so I'd say logistics, injury management, um, 
beginners potentially and finally personal preference potentially you know mm-hmm. ultimately it's still somewhat unclear what magnitude of effect we're talking about here mm-hmm. and certainly based on the evidence i'd say it has like a trivial to small effect size probably um i know people love to act like their their every research or their gimmick is going to revolutionize your results but when we're talking about range of motion we're talking about a modest but hopefully noticeable impact right um so i think if someone's personal preference really doesn't align with what the evidence says and the evidence is either uncertain or doesn't suggest a huge impact of a certain thing then personal preference may just be more important you know um because ultimately how much you enjoy training may very much dictate how much you stick to it for example mm-hmm. so that may indirectly catering to personal preference may indirectly lead to greater training adherence and thus results as well um and so i say personal preference injury management um logistics and finally the sort of training status for very beginners i'd say those four are some of the main ones i'd um deviate from lengthen partials um from in those sort of situations thank you i'm really glad we covered this because i really like your balanced position i'm always trying to um to my best through my content not to promote black or white views so i wouldn't want listeners to take away from this podcast that if they can't do length and partials then their training is uh, useless for hypertrophy so i'm really glad that we went over uh, these particular circumstances now you've mentioned that there are specific ways to at least emphasize the lengthened range outside aside from doing length and partials so could you cover those with some practical examples absolutely before i do so and there's quite a few um i want to make clear that if anything and i know this might um strike people as somewhat weird these are a bit more experimental than length and partials and it's ironic because people probably think of length and partials being more experimental but actually mm-hmm. length and partials have been studied pretty consistently now you know we have quite a few studies on this mm-hmm. um, whereas the ways of emphasizing length and position i'm about to suggest haven't been directly studied so while it stands to reason that they would have some effect in improving hypertrophy because they're emphasizing that stimulative productive length and position it hasn't been studied directly so it's kind of like it's um you know with length and partials we kind of have mapped out that area of the map already but with these things um you know those areas seem less dangerous to people because they're more familiar whereas length and partials or you know it's a big way of shifting your training um mm-hmm. we don't actually know what that looks like in terms of does it improve hypertrophy it probably does it stands to reason but i wouldn't say it's as um evidence based quote unquote as just doing lengthen partials but if you're a bit reluctant to change your range of motion for some reason and just want to find ways to emphasize the lengthen position if you're not feeling quite as experimental with um your range of motion and changing that and then i think there's a few ways of emphasizing that lengthen position the first one would be pausing in the lengthen position and generally there's two modifications to tempo i would suggest the first one is pausing in the lengthen position and the second one is slowing down the eccentric a decent bit when you get to the bottom of a lift or through the stretch position so the more you control the eccentric the higher the force production requirement to do so right like if you didn't mm-hmm. control it on the way down at all it would just drop So the more force you put in, the slower it will move down, right? And so if you want to make an exercise more stimulative, we probably want to control the weight more and more as we get to longer and longer muscle lengths. 
especially when that part of the lift is reasonably challenging, right? Like in a squat, for example, you probably want to take the eccentric kind of slow at the top, but it doesn't really matter because it's short muscle lengths and it's not that difficult anyways. Um, but then as you get closer and closer to the hole or to ask the grass, you probably want to slow down. And then you want to come to a pause. Again, same concept, producing tension at low muscle lengths, likely get a different hypertrophy. And then out of the hole, you likely want to be as explosive as possible. Um, mm-hmm. So in initiating the concentric phase, you want to be as explosive as possible. And the reasoning is the same here, right? Um, in order to be, in order to lift the weight explosively and accelerate it more quickly, um, you need to produce as much force as possible. And so producing as much force and being as explosive as possible at the start of the concentric phase, when your muscles are most lengthened, is a nice way of also emphasizing length of position and hopefully making each set more productive. Um, mm-hmm. This might be especially helpful for exercises that don't have much of a force production requirement at the bottom or in length position. And I'm thinking here, for example, of um, dumbbell lateral raises. Well, inherently, because of the resistance curve, they may not be ideal for hypertrophy compared to something like a cable lateral raise. But by being explosive out of the bottom, even though you know you could easily make that part of the lift happen without producing much force, by being explosive out of the bottom, you're producing more force than is necessary, but you're producing a lot of force in that lengthened position, which is likely a good thing for hypertrophy. So that's one thing. I think tempo modifications could be one way of applying it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that also, broadly speaking, means you should probably avoid pausing in a shortened position because that is the least stimulative part of the exercise. And so, you know, whatever you add to the shortened position, you kind of have to take away from the lengthened position, right? It's kind of like bands or chains, which I'll come to in a second, is that oftentimes, or pretty much always actually, when you use bands or chains for an exercise, it makes the exercise more challenging in a shortened position and less challenging in a lengthened position. And for hypertrophy, that's the opposite of what we want. Um, And so just like pausing in a shortened position makes the lift more challenging in that shortened position, um, adding bands or chains to an exercise makes that exercise relatively easier in the shortened position and relatively, sorry, harder in the shortened position and relatively easier in length position which is very much the opposite of what we want for hypertrophy based on the data we have. So I'd say make some tempo modifications, potentially um, remove bands or chains from all exercises, ideally. Like I think there's just not enough evidence to support the use of bands and chains for hypertrophy, and we have pretty a pretty compelling rationale for not using them. Um, another one would be selecting exercises that, A, place your muscles into very lengthened positions. So for example, a machine row that allows you to get a deep stretch in your back is better than a machine row that doesn't allow you to get a deep stretch in your back. So pick Mm. your exercises carefully, pick equipment that allows you to get a good stretch and ideally as much stretch as possible in those muscle groups. And in the same sort of vein, pick exercises that will make that part of the range of motion challenging. Mm -hmm. So the lengthened position should be reasonably challenging. It's probably not a huge deal if it's not the most challenging, like you don't fail a rep in the super stretch position. Mm-hmm. But it, it should at least be quite challenging. Um, if there's no tension there at all, it's likely not ideal. And that's why, for example, that sort of leads you away from exercises like dumbbell lateral raises with full range of motion. It might lead you closer to, for example, cable lateral raises. Because in the case of cable lateral raises, you can both get a deeper stretch in your side delts because of the positioning that it allows. And you can also have a lot more tension in that position. Um, so I'd say those are probably the four main ways I can think of. So tempo modifications, making sure not to use bands and chains, 
um, making sure your exercise stretches your target muscle group and making sure the exercise also places plenty of tension or difficulty in that part of the range of motion. I would say those are the four main things if you're not really willing to manipulate range of motion, but you're still, um, you still want to modify your training in order to make it slightly more productive. And then the final thing is if you're willing to try out some sort of intensity techniques, mm-hmm. um, I think there is some decent rationale behind doing something called a lengthened superset. So essentially, that's when you take, as an example, your machine row to failure or close to failure, however close to failure you want to train, um, using a four-range motion. So you know, when you fail your first four-range motion rep, instead of putting down the weight, you keep going, but just doing half reps or quarter reps or third reps or what have you in that lengthened position, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes, you'll be able to do between like three and ten more reps that way. Mm-hmm. And you'll still, quote unquote, get the benefits of four-inch motion if that's something you're after, both as far as performance outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And if you're just not willing to shift away from four-inch motion too much, but you'll also be able to emphasize the length of position slightly, especially in exercises where or body parts where most exercises for that muscle group don't really challenge those muscle at long muscle lengths. What I'm thinking of here specifically are the side delts in the back, for example. Most back exercises like pull-ups, rows, uh, pull-downs, cable rows, etc., and most side delt exercises like upright rows or lateral raises don't really place too much tension on the side delts or back in the lengthened position. And so even when you hit failure with full range of motion, the lengthened position hasn't been stimulated all that well. And so by incorporating a lengthened superset, you'd be able to do more reps in the lengthened position and hopefully get a better stimulus overall. Um, that's one other way I'd say there is of emphasizing length of position. So I'd say those five things predominantly are what I'd consider if you want to emphasize the length of position for hypertrophy without changing from a full range of motion to a partial range of motion in the length of position. Thank you. That was fantastic. Now, you mentioned that some of your athletes are already training purely with uh, length and partials. And I know that you're also, you've also been implementing purely length and partials for maybe eight to 10 weeks now in your own training. So I think it would be interesting for the audience for you to talk through that experience and how it's going, how you set up your training to begin with, how you're recovering, whether your volume requirements have changed and so on and so forth. That is one broad question. Uh, yeah, so yes. I would say regarding volume requirements, I haven't really noticed a difference in how I recover. And broadly mm-hmm. speaking, that's been what I've observed as well with clients is that their volumes haven't really changed. So okay. one concern with the uh, range of motion research or length and partial specifically is that some very limited prior research had suggested that longer muscle length training may be more fatiguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, there wasn't that much evidence on this topic yet. And my experience with it has been that the novelty of training at lower muscle lengths um, probably mediates a lot of that fatigue. So I think most of the reason that you see higher fatigue in these studies, to my knowledge, is that it's more novel. Like most people haven't trained hard at long muscle lengths before. So just like the first time you train legs or when you sprint downhill, when you usually don't do so, you'll get sore. It's normal and you'll get fatigued. Um, But the more you do it, I think eventually it's very comparable to a four range of motion. So I don't think it's inherently more fatiguing. And certainly my volume requirements haven't really changed. It's hard to say because like, you know, especially in the short term, you can't really determine what 
whether something caused more growth than something else on mm-hmm. an N equals one basis, because there's a lot of confounders as well. Like, you know, Nikias today isn't the same Nikias as two months ago in terms of stress, sleep, yeah. variety of things. Um, so when you're comparing, say, eight weeks of training now to eight weeks of training two months ago, it's difficult to draw causal inferences. Um, I'd say overall, my experience has been reasonably positive. I'm very cautious around making strong claims around my experience. Ultimately, this is why we have science. Uh, if all it took was N equals one um, anecdotes to convince someone else to do something, uh, we'd be running into a lot of issues. Um, so I'd say my experience has been reasonably positive and likewise with my clients. I'd say the biggest issue with clients has been people who enjoy full range of motion um, don't necessarily enjoy partial length and partials that much. So I've had a couple of clients who just conceptually or um, in terms of preference really enjoyed full range of motion. And when we switched them over to a partial range of motion, they didn't enjoy it that much. And so uh, we sort of shifted them back a little bit. Um, but for the most part, people have enjoyed it. Um, I would say the acute feedback, like pump, soreness, et cetera, has been pretty comparable as well. I think it's a similar thing as with recovery or fatigue from lengthened partials. Initially, there's, there was a slight sort of adjustment period for the first week or two, I'd say. And generally, I do recommend people transition relatively gradually into doing, like let's say they, someone's doing only full range of motion right now and they want to go and do only lengthened partials. I would probably transition them over at least a few weeks. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's it's a huge deal if they just jump into it, because ultimately, if been, if you've been doing a full range of motion consistently, you've already exposed yourself to long muscle lengths with plenty of tension. Mm-hmm. But it's just it's a it's a slightly increased emphasis on those positions. So I'd say a gradual transition of maybe a couple weeks is good. Um, as I said, certain exercises are easier with a length and partial approach. And certain exercises are harder, and certain exercises are approximately the same. So it did require some adjustment in the working load. Um, and on some exercises, it's meant I progressed relatively quickly. And I think that correlates pretty well to what exercises are relatively easy in a lengthened position usually. So when you do them as a lengthened partial, they become actually relatively hard there. So for mm-hmm. example, on machine rows or pull-ups or what have you, I've seen some relatively quick progression in my numbers. Whereas for things like a bench press or a squat, where performing a lengthened partial isn't actually all that different from a full range of motion when you think about it. Because in a squat, for example, the top third of the movement, not really all that much is happening anyways. So switching mm-hmm. full range of motion to a lengthened partial is likely not changing the exercise all that much. And so the weights being used and the progression that you're seeing is pretty similar to what you would have gotten with full range of motion. Um, so I'd say broadly speaking, that's been my experience. I think my, like, as I said, my acute feedback has been similar. I certainly haven't noticed any less muscle growth or necessarily any more muscle growth either than before. Yeah. Um, it was, it's interesting because people have sort of referred to what I'm doing as an experiment. I'd say it's not really like at this point, if, if my goals are purely hypertrophy, which they are, um, I don't see a compelling reason to do full range of motion only. Um, mm-hmm. I see the evidence is leaning in favor of lengthened partials for hypertrophy. And so it's not really an experiment. It's more like just, you know, if the evidence was leaning in favor of four range of motion, you wouldn't call doing four range of motion an experiment. This isn't an experiment either. The evidence is supporting it, so I'm doing it. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, that's been my experience with doing lengthened partials. Um, it's been a nice change of pace as well. But as I said earlier, there are cases where I wouldn't use it. But if your goals are purely hypertrophy, at this point, I'm pretty comfortable recommending them. 
that's very interesting. That gets me wondering. Uh, one could make an argument for the standardization of each repetition. And when you're doing full range of motion, it's relatively easy because there's a, usually a clear end point and a clear start point. Like, for example, on a bench press, clear end points uh, are your arms fully extended. And then the clear um, and then at the other end point is when the bar touches your chest. So with length and partials, that can be a little bit more challenging to standardize your repetitions. First, do you agree that standardization is important for hypertrophy? And if you do agree, then how do you accomplish that with length and partials? So I like the wording of that question uh, because I, I don't think it's all that important. I think it is somewhat important and I think it's mostly important as part of what I call training hygiene. Um, so inherently, just because your range of motion today isn't exactly what it was last week, let's say it's off by, let's be wild here and say 5%, right? Um, that doesn't mean that you're not getting a really good stimulus from today's session. Standardization itself plays relatively little role on training stimulus. Um, and certainly within certain boundaries, which most people achieve pretty comfortably, like I'd say, you know, when you tell people, hey, train with the same range of motion week to week, very few people will be off by, say, more than 10% week to week. And the data we have on range of motion suggests that range of motion doesn't make that much of a difference on adaptation. And so I'm very skeptical of the idea that um, slight variations in range of motion week to week will make or break your training. Uh, at best, I think they make a very, very, very small impact. At worst, I think they make no impact whatsoever. Um, so... That's one part of the question. I don't think it's that important for stimulus. Um, the second part of the question is, do I think it's more difficult to standardize? I would say marginally so, yeah. Um, I think it's easier than people realize. So for most machine work, for example, um, so I was training with uh, Steve Hall recently. I'm not sure if you know Steve Hall. Yes, I had him on the podcast as well. Excellent. Um, we were training together recently once. And for example, we did some machine rows and on machine rows, you know, when you're setting up the seat, there's like numbers for the settings. You can very easily standardize range of motion by just pulling until the handles reach that setting, for example. There's plenty of exercises, especially machine-based exercises, where standardizing range of motion is super easy, just as easy as with full range of motion. Um, on compound free weight exercises, it can be a bit more challenging. But here's the cool thing. So as I mentioned earlier, we're currently starting a study on range of motion. Mm -hmm. specifically in the upper body, uh, giving people a full program three days a week, very sort of evidence-based training, complete upper body training program. And as part of that study that we're starting now, we performed some reliability testing. So essentially looking at how reliable are people performing a six repetition maximum using a partial range of motion. So we had some people go through um, six repetition maximum testing using lengthened partials on pull-downs, uh, incline lumbar pressing, cable lateral raises, cable pushdowns, easy bar preach curls, and machine overhead press. So a variety of exercises. And again, in that testing, they were doing half the range of motion in the lengthened position, right? And we were testing their six rep maxes. And then we did that on one day with about 48 hours rest before. And then on another day, again, with about 48 hours rest before, to see how consistent were they on day one versus day two given the same conditions and the same protocol and everything. And people were remarkably consistent. So that to me suggests that people are a either pretty good at gauging the range of motion mm -hmm. or at least um, good enough that their numbers will look similar over time. You know, 
Um, yes. And this is in people that were relatively naive to range of motion or like latent partials. Um, so if anything, I expect that would improve with time. But certainly my experience and this reliability testing and um, yeah, my experience with machines, especially, for example, has been that it's not that difficult to standardize a partial range of motion. And conceptually, I don't think it's that important either. So that's my sort of stance on it. And I think that's why it's a relatively minor to completely um, inconsequential limitation of partial range of motion. I would agree with that. Thank you for explaining and thank you for your generosity with your time and your knowledge. In conclusion, I'd like you to take some time to advertise anything that you'd like the audience to know about, and I'll put all the links in the show notes. Hey, man, this is my favorite part of the podcast, you know? Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, so you can find me at WolfCoach on Instagram. So that's my last name, Wolf and Coach, with an underscore at the end. You can find my website where I have coaching and all that stuff at wolfcoaching.net. And then finally, I have a podcast, as uh, Nikias mentioned earlier to me, um, called Muscle and Feels. So that's Muscle and Feels on YouTube, Spotify, and all your favorite platforms. Um, it's a play on Muscle and Fitness, the magazine. And yeah, if you want to find some of my research, including the meta-analysis we discussed, you can find that if you just Google Milo Wolf Research Gate, you should be able to find all my papers I've published there. Um, there's some more stuff coming on Ranger Motion. Um, so take a look and hopefully... Everything, I'm pretty sure, is openly available, so you don't need to be part of the university or anything like that to be able to read it, which is a big thing I, uh, I could have called stand for, is that I want to make sure that my papers are openly available, because otherwise, what's the point, in a way, you know? Yeah, absolutely, which is great, because I am not a researcher, I'm not affiliated with a university, and that's the only way I can read scientific papers. Exactly, 100%. I think that's very important, and it's kind of a responsibility you have as a researcher to an extent. Um, and I try and make sure that the papers I do publish are as freely available as possible. Thank you. And as I said, all the links, dear listeners, will be in the show notes. So thank you very much for to everyone for tuning in. Thank you, Milo, for being on. And I'll speak to you next time. Thank you again for listening. I hope that you found it as valuable as I did. As usual, if you want to connect with myself or with Milo, And if you're interested in coaching with either of us, you'll find all of the links in the description to this episode. Thank you again for tuning in and until next time. Lastly, if you want to support the podcast and help me reach more people, please leave a five-star rating or review on any podcast platform that you're using. Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.